Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, and then let's um, dive into this, uh, this truth called family on mission. And here, here's what's going on. The, the, Lord is, the Lord has been called to rise up in this, uh, what I just said, gospel with power. He's also been speaking to our church this whole year to what we said is go higher in praise. Just that we as a church would begin, continue to learn how to go deeper into his presence as we go higher in praise and sing to the Lord out of our own heart and not just sing the words on the page. And, and so we've been learning this. We've been growing in our worship. We've been growing and moving in the gospel with power. And I just see the faith rising in our hearts regarding his promise. But the Lord spoke another thing to us earlier in this year that we've been uh, working on behind the scenes and I want to declare to us in this series, the Lord's been telling us to go, t- uh, basically, he, he said to us, tighter community. That we as a church would really press in and, and be the community that Jesus envisions. Be the family that Jesus died for, amen? And he died to make us the church, to make us the new family of God, the new community of God. And, and so we want to press into what does this look like to walk in unity? What does this look like to be the church? And we're going to press into this on a number of different levels uh, in the next month. But today, I just want to answer the question, what is the church? And I can't answer the whole, uh, we can't look at everything that the Bible says about the church. But I'll tell you this, if you were studying the church in the Bible, or if you were talking about the church from the word of God, you can't do it without talking, going to Ephesians. This letter, Ephesians, which Paul wrote to the church that was in a city called Ephesus, that letter, literally, it's like this essay. It's, it's, they, many, many of the scholars in the, in the uh, church for 2,000 years have called Ephesians the, uh, 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 the, the, the Mount Everest of Scripture, the keystone of the Bible. It is, it is literally the pinnacle of Paul's theology. It is one of the most important books in the New Testament or even to the whole Bible. And guess what? It's all about the church. That's the theme. Paul writes this letter to these Ephesian believers and he tells them who they are in Christ. He talks to them about God's love for them and how they're, uh, how they're uh, saved by grace. And there's so much in this letter for us and who we are as Christians. In fact, we've been talking about that a lot this year. In 2012, we've been talking a lot about who we are in Christ and how we're righteous in Christ. But Paul moves in this letter from talking about us as individuals to us as a community. So many believers, they talk about, our, they talk about their identity, my identity in Christ, and that's what it is, I. And it's so focused on self, but the reality is, is that our identity is in Christ, isn't it? It's Christ's identity. And we have come into Christ and, and we've come into him, and so we actually have a collective identity in the Lord. And that's what Paul is going to talk about here in Ephesians. He wants these believers in Ephesians, and God uh, wants us to understand these truths in this letter for us, that we would understand what it means to be the church so that we can walk in this. Amen? All right, so let's do that. Let's dive into this. Um, so, Lord, we pray that you would reveal the truth of your word and show us who we are as your church in Jesus' name, amen. So in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is talking about Jesus and he's talking about the church. He's actually praying uh, and he's, he's asking that we would kind of get this. But basically starting off in, in verse 19, he's talking about the power of God that's available for us. And he's talking about who Christ is and he st- says something profound about Jesus 
and absolutely profound about the church. So listen to this in verse 19, chapter 1, Ephesians. He says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he exerted in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, uh, all, uh, far above all principality and power, might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so in in just these few verses, Paul just, and this is totally common with Paul, he just can't stop himself. He just starts talking about how great Jesus is. And what he says is that God, by God's power, raised Jesus Christ from the dead, right? He died for our sins and he raised him from the dead on the third day. And then the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead caused Jesus to be exalted to the right hand of the Father. And the right hand of, 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 of anyone is always considered that place of privilege and power and favor and things like that, right? In the ancient world. And so for Jesus to be at the right hand of God means that he has the greatest privilege and the greatest power and the greatest favor right there at the Father's right hand. And then Paul makes sure that you understand just how amazing this is by by, by just goes, goes off on it. He says, yeah, the Father seated him at his right hand, far above all principality power and might and dominion, which are basically words of authority and power. He's referring to any demonic power, any human rulership. Do you remember when Jesus rose from the dead and he came to his disciples? Uh, In Matthew 28, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's what he's talking about. In fact, you remember in Philippians chapter two, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ. So it says every knee will bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, yeah? What's going on here? That Jesus is at the Father's right hand and every other authority, I don't care if it's your principal or your, the president of the United States or some demon or Satan himself or death or sin or anything, it's all under his feet. That's a good place for like an amen or a woohoo or something. That's good stuff, yeah? He has all authority in heaven and on earth. All authority. Nothing is higher than him. Nothing is higher than him. Everything is under his feet. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. He has all authority. Colossians 1 says he has the supremacy. It says that every, he's exalted, he's far above all principality, power, might, and dominion, and every name that is named. So anything that has a name, It's under his feet. Death has a name. It's called an enemy of God in 1 Corinthians 15. Sin. The Bible says that through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. And yet, when Jesus died on the cross, he defeated the power of sin. He didn't just die so your sins could be forgiven. He defeated the power of sin. You reign in life with Christ Jesus, says in Romans 5. And then Romans 6 says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Why? Because it's under his feet. Sin has no power over Jesus. Sin, uh, sickness has no power over Jesus. He died and he's risen and he's alive. Death has no power over Jesus. No demon has any authority over Jesus. Amen? And whose name do you have? Ephesians 2, 2 
It says that you're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. It says, and God raised us up together in verse 6 and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so if he's sitting at the Father's right hand and you're in Christ and you're sitting at the Father's right hand, if everything's under his feet, is everything under your feet? It's really very simple, isn't it? You have his name. You're an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. You're one with Jesus. And what is true of Jesus is true of you. First John says, as he is, so we are in this world. And so Paul is going off in chapter 1 just about how much power and how much authority Jesus has. And he's making sure these believers understand that there's no demon that is more powerful than Jesus. And there's no sickness or pain or anything. That's more powerful than Jesus. Verse 22, he says, and he put all things under his feet, making sure that we understand not only is he above everything, but everything's under his feet. And then it says that the father gave Jesus to be the head over all things, the head over all things. Again, he has the supremacy over everything. One day Jesus will come back and he will be the ruler over the nations. He will be the king. He's called the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And one day the father will give him the nations as his inheritance. And so right now, even now that he is risen and exalted and sit the Father's right hand, he's the head over all things. I mean, he's the king. But he says, notice what it says here, he's the head over all things to the church, or literally, you know, for the sake of the church, which is his body. Right? The church is the body of Christ. We belong to him, we're in him. But listen to this phrase, the church, which is his body, in verse 23, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What was it saying about Jesus? It says that he fills all in all. He is the fullness. He's everything in that sense. Why? Because he is the beginning and he is the end. He is the first and he is the last. Colossians says that everything was made by him and for him, which is like saying creation began with him and it will all be led to a point where he is the ruler of it all. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. He has the supremacy, says Colossians chapter one. He is all in all. He fills everything in every way. Meaning that from the lowest point of this earth all the way up to the highest point of heaven, he is the king and he has all authority. That's what Paul is saying. The one that fills all in all, he's saying he has complete authority in the natural realm, in the spiritual realm, in every aspect of our life. We are to fear no demon. We are to fear no sickness. We are to fear no sin. You tell it, no, You don't reign in my mortal body. I will not let you reign in me. Your sin, you're defeated at the cross. Jesus Christ is my Lord, and I give my body as a weapon of righteousness for his kingdom, right? This is how we are to walk and how we are to live, because this is who our Lord is, amen? We're not defeated, we're victorious. But notice that he says something about the church, too. He doesn't just say that Jesus fills all in all, but he says that the church is the fullness of Jesus who fills all in all. And what does that mean? The church, the body of Christ, is the fullness of Jesus? Can that be? That we are the fullness of Jesus? What does that mean? What does that mean? That is profound. And simply... I think one of the best ways to say it so that we can just get it is that for the church to be the fullness of Jesus is to say that we are literally God's redemptive plan on the earth. 
He died for our sins and he rose again. And those people who put their faith in Jesus, those people who say yes to the lordship of Jesus Christ and they put their faith in Jesus, they are born again, right? Their sins are forgiven. And what is true of Jesus is true of us like I just said. And God has determined that those people who put their faith in Jesus, they come into Christ, they're called the church, and that those people would be God's redemptive plan on the earth. That we are literally the hope of this world. We are salt and light to this world. Let me say it this way. What God wants to do to heal and restore all nations, what God wants to do to bring restoration in every aspect of society, to bring righteousness to every aspect of society, to heal nations and to bring the blessing of God that he promised Abraham. Do you remember that? God promised Abraham, in you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What God wants to do to bless the nations, what God wants to do to bring healing and restoration, he has begun in the church. And so just like Jesus, he, remember, do you remember he said this in Matthew 28? He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples of all nations. What was he saying? Here, here are the keys. He told parables about like this all the time. Hey, you know, a king's going to leave. There's this, there's this king, you know, Jesus would tell a story. The kingdom of heaven's like a king who's going to go on a long journey. And so he gave his servants his house. Here you go. Here's my authority, says in Mark 13. So he gave his authority to his servants, and to each one he gave them their work. Well, here's some, here's some uh, few hundred bucks for you. Here's a few hundred bucks for you. Do business till I come. And then Jesus would tell the story that this king would go on a long journey, and this king would come back to settle accounts. And what was he looking for? How did you steward my house? For, it to, for us to be the fullness of Jesus on earth is that we are representing Jesus here on earth. That we are his body, his representation here on earth. That he has all authority and he has given us his name to exercise that authority on earth as it is in heaven. To literally represent him and to be Jesus to other people. And to love people. And like I said about sin, the same thing with demons. Just like Jesus said, get out. That in his name we would tell those demons to leave. See, Jesus said that the church, or we as individual believers, we are salt and we are light, right? Darkness only exists where light is not, right? Or where light is covered. Yes? If there's darkness anywhere, it's because either there's no light or because light has been covered. If, if you see a piece of meat in the ancient world, if a piece of meat was decaying, why, why is there decay there? Because there's no salt. In the ancient world, they didn't have refrigerators. So they used salt to preserve things. If something's decaying, why is it decaying? There's no salt. Or the salt has lost its saltiness. Right? And isn't that what Jesus said? You are the salt to the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness or its flavor, it's worthless. And you're the light of the world. But who takes a lamp and covers it up? No one. What is he trying to say? You're salt. You keep the decay of this world out. 
You are a transformative element to push death out. You are the light of this world to push darkness out. Don't lose your saltiness. Don't cover up the light. That's what Jesus is saying. And so if I look around this world, if I look around this community, and I see darkness, why is that darkness there? Well, it's the devil. Yep. Well, it's sin. Yep. But why is it there? See, the church isn't at fault for the brokenness and the sin of this world. Human beings who rebel against God and demons who deceive them, they're the ones who are at fault. But who's responsible? Who's the hope? Who's the redemptive agents? Who are the only ones who can bring light and life? Who are the ones who are carrying the message that will save people? Only the church. We are the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen? So if I see darkness in my city, if you see darkness somewhere, why is it there? Either because light isn't there or because somebody has covered up their light. If I see decay in our, if I see decay in our nation, why is it there? Either the salt isn't there or somebody's lost their saltiness. Because either the church isn't there or the church has lost its saltiness. It's really that simple. If I see, do, do you understand? Do you understand? I don't care how much authority the president has or a senator or the principal of your school or your boss. I mean, we honor their authority in, in a human way. So I don't mean that. I don't care how much authority they have. Who has all authority in heaven and earth? And he's given you his name. Who's responsible for our nation? Do you really think do you really think that the president is the hope of our nation? Or is it the church? If I see a problem, I'm responsible for that problem. Do you understand that? Because you are the salt and you are the light of the world. You're not at fault. We don't walk in false guilt. Praise God, we're forgiven and all that. Hallelujah. But when we see a problem in our community, when you see a neighborhood and there's brokenness in that neighborhood, it's because the church isn't there. That's it. Man, I don't understand. Why is suffering in this world? Well, let's answer the question first. Jesus paid for that suffering on the cross, so he is the answer and the cure. But why hasn't it, you know, why, how come this bad thing happened in Africa? Why, how, how come that, mm, why come, how come there's abuse in that, in that community? Jesus is the cure. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Everything feet. But the answer is really very simple. How come that bad thing is still happening? Because the church isn't there. Or the church has lost its saltiness. We are God's redemptive plan on the earth. Whatever he wants to do, he does in the church. And the church, like salt and light, transforms the world. And let me tell you, you study church history. I'll tell you some stories probably another day. 
Every time the church has believed the word of God, believed and lived according to the gospel, the church has always been salt and light, has always been a transformative element in society. But every time the church forgets who they are, becomes selfish, isolated, fearful, judgmental, and does not take responsibility to be salt and light, the church ceases to be salt and light. They either become irrelevant or they actually become a part of the problem, corruption and greed. We've seen it. But most of the time, most of the stories you've heard probably being raised in secular environments have been the church's hypocrites. The church has done the crusades. The church has done this. The church has done that. Yeah, that's, that, yeah. Yeah, that stinks. It's messed up. That's called people who weren't walking according to the gospel. Because anyone who actually reads the gospel and lives the way of Christ is not going to do that. But many of you have not heard the stories of how the church has transformed society. You take the church out of the world, it would be far worse. And any logical person who understands and has studied history would know exactly what I'm saying. One of my favorite stories is uh, in the Bible. It's this little story about a man named Philemon and his runaway slave named Onesimus. Some of you who do your daily Bible reading, you'll run across Philemon one day out of the year. (laughs) Because it's a one-chapter book, really small book of the Bible. It's a letter Paul wrote to a man named Philemon, and it's right there in the middle of the New Testament. And if you don't know what's going on, you go, great. (laughs) And I'll get a devotional insight next week. Or next, I mean tomorrow or whatever. But it's actually one of the most profound stories of redemption. And it's an insight into Paul's passionate, confident expectation that the church is the hope of the world. It's like a case study. You read Ephesians and you read Colossians and you read Philemon and Philemon's the case study. Ephesians is the theology. They were all written at the same time when he was in prison in Rome. What happened was this, ma- this master's name is Philemon. And his slave, one of his slaves, Onesimus, ran away. And uh, they were living in uh, Asia Minor where Paul had preached and seen a number of people come to the Lord. In fact, Paul had led Philemon to the Lord. Or maybe one of Paul's uh, other partners had led Philemon to the Lord. So Philemon was a Christian living in Asia Minor, which is now like modern-day Turkey. Onesimus ran away, and in those days, slavery was rampant in the Roman Empire. Why? Because of a tremendous amount of debt slavery, right? It would, you know, it's like modern-day visas. Okay, so um, the, uh, these people would, were it's so under a weight of taxation from the Roman government that they would have to sell themselves into slavery. And in fact, it was a, it was a core element to the economy of Rome. It was how the economy functioned. And in fact, if you were a slave, you probably lived better than most peasants who uh, didn't have anything. And, and obviously, it depended on your slave owner, whether or not they would be abusive to you or not, right? But so this is a different kind of slavery than we might think of as in America when we think of slavery uh, where we, uh, or the Western world, just exported people from their country and 
devastated them. You know, it's a little bit different here. (laughs) This is people living life, getting into taxation. It's still oppressive. And they would come into a place where they needed to uh, become like in debt bondage or maybe indentured servitude or something like that, right? And so Onesimus runs away from his slave and he finds Paul in Rome or somehow finds Paul. It's actually really an amazing story. We have no idea if Onesimus knew Paul or if it was like a, uh, you know, it was probably one of those divine appointments, I think. I think what are the chances that this slave runs away from his Christian owner Philemon and goes to Rome, which is this massive capital city where a fifth of the population are slaves. And Paul is in prison, which by the way, he was in house arrest, under house arrest, so it's not like he was in a dungeon. He was in house arrest, people could visit him. And this, somehow he meets this man named Onesimus. He leads Onesimus to the Lord. And then he sends Onesimus back to Philemon. That's not a very American thing to do, is it? Because God wants you happy. Right? Paul sees these things much bigger than we do. He leads Onesimus to the Lord, and he now sees that Philemon and Onesimus, he says, you guys are brothers. You guys are brothers now. And so he sends Onesimus back to Philemon. To be honest, there's probably an issue of debt, right? Like Philemon, or I'm sorry, Onesimus probably owed him some debt. So it, it, it's not just, like I said, it's not like uh, some sort of, uh, like I said, it's probably like some sort of an indentured servitude where he says, you know, Onesimus, you need to go back. And so he encourages Onesimus. Onesimus willingly goes back and Philemon writes this, I'm sorry, Paul writes the letter Philemon to say to Philemon, I'm sending Onesimus back and I'm asking you to receive him, not as a slave, but as a brother. This is huge. This is absolutely huge. Paul is not outrightly saying slavery is evil or anything like that. But he is saying that the systems of authority are wrong. He is saying that we no longer are to relate to one another based upon this cultural things that I'm a master, you're a slave, that kind of thing. He's saying, no, 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 no. When you come into the church, we're brothers and sisters. Right? He said... In Christ, we're all one, neither Jew nor Gentile, nor male nor free, or male nor female, nor free nor slave. He says we're all one in Christ. And he's teaching people to love one another and to walk as a family. And Paul believes, he has the audacity to believe, that if a runaway slave and a master will love each other like brothers, it will transform society. Why? Because you completely redefine power structures. Didn't Jesus say this himself? Hey, if you want to be the highest, if you want to be the greatest, you need to become the least. What if every person who was in authority lived like that? What if every president or whatever, or uh, employer, manager, owner, boss, thought, in order to be the greatest, I must be the least? And practice the kind of servant leadership Jesus talked about. Where you don't take, but you give. So Jesus laid out this principle. And Paul is convinced that if the people of God would believe who they are. And begin to relate to one another in a completely new way. That their relationship would transform society. 
I love what uh, a scholar says about this letter. Uh, There's a, a great man named F.F. F. Bruce. And he comments on the letter of Philemon and he says this. See if I can find the quote. That Paul was bringing the institution of slavery into an atmosphere where it could only wilt and die. To bring slavery into an, a family environment where your brothers now brings the institution of slavery into an environment where it will only wilt and die. He's absolutely right. He says this, where master and slave were united in affection as brothers in Christ, formal emancipation would be but a matter of expediency, the legal confirmation of their new relationship. We don't know this for sure, but here's what a, one of the traditions say about the letter of Philemon. A little bit later, we have this letter to a bishop in Ephesus, and his name is Onesimus. And although Onesimus is a common uh, name, there's a number of indications that we, honestly, a lot of scholars believe this tradition, and I do, that Onesimus became the bishop of one of the largest and most influential churches in all of the Roman Empire, the Church of Ephesus. Just probably a couple decades after this letter, I see that as an indication that not only did Philemon receive this letter and receive Onesimus as a brother, but that he literally walked that brotherhood out, released this man Onesimus, and Onesimus rose up to be a leader, one of the key leaders of this church. By 300 AD, the church in the Roman Empire had grown so vast that the political leaders, people like Constantine, you probably heard of Constantine, kind of made Christianity a legal religion. It was really just a really good political move because so many people had come to know Jesus already. Good political move, maybe not such a great move for us uh, because he kind of institutionalized some things that shouldn't have never been. But just the church, being the church, even persecuted and killed, but loving one another and serving one another and preaching Jesus and moving in the power of the Spirit transformed the Roman Empire and they were a minority group. And people just kept coming to Jesus. You may hear this. This is the same thing that's happening in places like China. Where they, in the early 1900s, tried to destroy the church in China, the communist movement. They killed missionaries. They killed key leaders in the Chinese church. And they thought they destroyed the Chinese church. We in the Western world, in the early 1900s, the mid-1900s, we thought Christianity was dead in China. <laughs> yeah, right. This last hundred years, millions. I met a leader. I met a leader of, the, of one of the Chinese house churches. An apostolic leader over millions of Christians. Millions meeting in house churches. And it's transforming their country, I guarantee. I guarantee it. Even as we speak right now, the poorest of the poor in Mozambique are changing their country. A country that is the poorest countries in the world, devastated by when socialism didn't really work in about the 80s. And tons of orphans are left with nothing. And a church ministry comes in and begins to lead these little ones to Jesus. 
one person at a time and start orphanages and places. And these little ones are now older. It happened as they raised up pastors and pastors would adopt and father a fatherless generation. And I'll tell you, it, you'll, you'll, it, it, it takes time, it takes generations to see economic and social transformation. Just like it takes you and I time to grow as a Christian, how long do you think it takes a society to be transformed? But I guarantee you, look at Africa, and it's not nonprofit organizations, although praise God for those, those are probably helping, and it's not politics and governments that are doing this, but it's the church, and listen, the extreme rates of poverty, the rate of extreme poverty is drastically decreasing around the world. Why? Church is the hope of the world. We are salt and light. Are we the only ones fighting against extreme poverty? No, but we are salt. Without the influence of the church, you wouldn't have other people rising up. Who are the ones who fought against slavery? It was the church. You do your history. You study your history. The abolitionists were Christians. Were they all Christian? No, no. But it's always the church on the front lines. It's the church. And I tell you, what's happening in Africa and nations like Mozambique, which it's not just Mozambique, it's transforming society from the ground up. It's the church. It's the church. When the church will be salt and light. In about 300 AD, because of the influence of Christianity, those political leaders, and praise God, and I'm not saying Christians shouldn't be in politics or Christians shouldn't be in this, that, and anything. I'm not, that's not what I meant when I said that our hope is not in a president. That's not what I was saying. Praise God. If, but that's not where the change comes from. Listen, in the Roman Empire, abortion was rampant. They would have babies and leave them exposed and let them die. It's common practice. Slavery, like I said, tons of slavery, right? There were no laws how you would treat your wife, how you would treat your, treat your slave. No laws. The brutality, the licentiousness in that, in that Roman Empire, it was, it was great. But just 300 years, I know it sounds like a long time for us, but you've got to think how the Lord thinks. It takes time to change people and change society. In just 300 years, as Christianity just leading people to Jesus, loving people. As Christianity grew, laws began to be put in effect. Licentious and cruel sports, I'm, I'm quoting here from a book, licentious and cruel sports were checked. New, new legislation was ordered to protect the slave, the prisoner, the mutilated man, the outcast woman. Children were granted important legal rights. Infant exposure was abolished. Women were raised from a status of degradation onto that of legal protection. Hospitals and orphanage were, orphanages were created to take care of foundlings, those probably who were left alone. Personal feuds and private wars were put under restraint, meaning that there were some laws that were put in place. Branding of slaves was halted. What is that? Is that the, that's just an example. It's an example of this, that when the church will love one another... When the church will be salt and light, it transforms society and people begin to see the value of the person. Justice. What is right. You really think that our nation is the way it is 
without the church's influence, then you're not a good student of history. And I don't just mean like our Declaration of Independence or whatever, although that's, that's important. Almost all the values that we take for granted of things like freedom and the value of a person, women's rights, abolition of people, that they would have the freedom and the right to ha- own land and to pursue their dream and their destiny, the things that have been twisted by entitlement mentalities in our nation, but really were rooted in values. Guess where it all began? Guess, guess, guess where, where, where that got preached from? Genesis chapter 1. When the Bible was written in Genesis chapter 1, this is the worldview of the people around the day of Genesis chapter 1. People were created to be the slaves of the gods. Guess who were the owners of the religion? The priests. Guess who owned all the land? The priests. Of course religion has been used to manipulate and control people and keep them in bondage. Genesis 1 says, you're blessed. You're made in the image of God. Go be kings and priests. Remember when God set the Israelites free? He said, take a day off. And I promise you land. I'm telling you from the beginning of the Bible, all throughout, you have rights and you have blessings that God wants every human being to walk in freedom and blessing. Where did that value come from? It came from the scriptures. And it is the word of God and it's the people of God who live that out as light in darkness and salt to decay. It is people who live that out that are the salt and the light of this world. Amen? We are the fullness. We are the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We are God's redemptive plan on the earth. You are salt and you are light to this world. We as the church are the hope of this world. We are God's redemptive plan. Whatever he wants to do, he will do in us first and then through us. We want to see abortion ended. It will be as the church does just what he said, disciple nations. You don't see Paul picketing outside of the Roman Empire, telling them to stop bad things. Why? Probably because he just knew it wouldn't work. Or maybe it's because the one who is the Lord of the church told us to do something else. Why do we get so distracted and we do something that Jesus didn't do? He said, go and preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely you receive, freely give. Do you realize that miracles are absolutely essential to justice? And who did he go and preach the gospel to? He went and preached the gospel to the poor, those who were oppressed, those who were oppressed under taxation and other laws that were not right. Who did he go to? A leper who was diseased and outcast, and he healed that leper. We are the hope of this world, and all that it takes is really simple is for the church to be the church. Because if there's decay in this community, it's either because I'm not there or because I've lost my saltiness. Now, I think we're pretty salty, but maybe there's some stuff in our city that's there because we've allowed it. See, when I come into a person's life who doesn't know Jesus, guess what? Everything's changed. Do you know that? You might not believe that, but you need to. 
When you walk into a neighborhood and there's darkness or demonic deception, you walk in and in the name of Jesus, you enforce the authority that has been given to you. Darkness, you can't be here anymore. How come? Because I'm here. No, 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 you don't understand. I, I, uh, this is my house. Not anymore. Not anymore. See, a lot of Christians, they're letting the devil steal from them. The devil comes in, moves into your, you went on vacation, the devil moved into your house. You come home. Hey, this is my house. No, it's not. It's my house now. Oh, I don't, I don't know. Why does God let bad things happen to me? And we just let the devil steal from us. Dude, you got to, in the name of Jesus, get out of my house. Get out. But you know, we weren't supposed to just do it for us, amen? Freely receive, freely give. Sure, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. Do you realize what all those promises are meant to do? I'm covered. He said, lose your life. I'll take care of you. Seek for the kingdom of God. All these things shall be added unto you. Shoot. All right, let's go. I'm going to do what he told me to do. He'll take care of my provision. He'll supply all my need according to his glory. Why? Because I'm a citizen of heaven. He pays my bills as long as you're on his payroll. So if you're about the kingdom's business, if you're about the king's business, the king will pay you. So the Bible promises what Jesus promises. So we do the work of the kingdom freely you receive, freely give. You walk into a neighborhood and you say, Mm-mm, I'm here now. You walk into a person's life who doesn't know Jesus and you say, Mm-mm, I'm, I'm, asking, I'm getting that person to come to Jesus. Every person you run into, every place you live, it is your ministry, it is your sphere of influence. Period. They're in your life. That is your calling. I don't know what my calling is. Just look around you. Just look around you. And you say, in the name of Jesus, I want that person. And you ask God by name for them. And we're going to go in and we're going to uh, go to a neighborhood soon. We're going to adopt that neighborhood. And we're going to walk in. And the Lord told me, the Lord's been just showing me some of this stuff. And the Lord said, you fear no demon. He said, this is not a game. This is not a game. He said, there are really people who are in bondage. There are really people who are being oppressed by demons. There really are people who are dead. And if they don't come to Jesus, they will die and go to hell. This is not a game. And he said, you go in there, you fear no demon. And he showed me, you walk right in. And and again, to people, we're like, hey, brother, hey, how you doing, man? And this is how we are relationally. Because this is called building trust relationally. And you you walk in honor and love. You don't walk up to somebody and go, should have bought a Honda and like start doing all weird stuff or whatever, right? Some people know what that joke is. Some people don't. Okay. You don't walk into somewhere and act all weird and stuff. But when you walk in in the spirit realm, you don't go, hey, what's up, devil? How you doing? You go, get out of my house. You see what I'm saying? Because you have all authority. It's through prayer. It's going to be through preaching the gospel with power and discipling people. It's going to be through... Uh, 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 holiness, walking in holiness. But bottom line, we are the hope of this world. And how do we do it? By being a family on mission. And we're going to talk about that. And I'm going to challenge you to be the church, to be the, uh, the new family of God that Jesus purchased with his blood. And I'm going to challenge you to take responsibility to be that family on mission. To take responsibility 
I'm not going to talk to you about what some other church should do or what some other Christians should do. I want to show you what the word of God says that the church is and the church is called to do and to be. Amen? Because this book, the word of God, is to be our blueprint for what real family looks like. Many of us come from broken homes and things like that, but it's God's word that is to be the blueprint for our family. And so we need to look into the word of God and say, Lord, show us what it means to be the church. Show us how to be the family of God. Show us how to be the salt and light you've called us to be. And we need to say, Lord, start right here. Start right here. And that's what we're going to do. So Luke 